The following is a presentation of the Six Arrows Radio Network. Episode 73, Ham Radio 360 Podcast. It's going to be a great time. We're going to learn more about APRS and hear from some of the listeners coming up. MTCRadio.com presents Ham Radio 360, the podcast. Brought to you by Ellacraft. Now, here's your host, Kel Nelson, K4CDN. So here we are again, the Ham Radio 360 podcast, episode number 73, y'all. Is that crazy? You know, uh, we, we like to number things in, in our society for whatever reason, you know, five-year anniversary, 25-year anniversary, and podcasting is the same way. If you make it to episode seven, you, you've actually started. And uh, when you get to 10, it's really exciting. 25 is a big deal. 50 was huge for us because we completely rebranded what we were doing. Uh, and 75 will be a big deal as well, I'm sure. But 73 has a special place in our hearts because it's what we say on the air, right? We finish a QSO, we say 73. So I'm going to make a big deal out of episode number 73. And it's going to be a great show, by the way. We got uh, Kenneth Finnegan coming back in here with us, and we're going to talk about some listener questions. And we're going to have the answers. Well, actually, Kenneth is going to have the answers for you about APRS. That original show we did spurred so much interest, we brought him back in to answer some questions we received following the initial airing of that show. In addition to that, we're going to have some uh, listeners peppered throughout the show as they give out their call sign and they say 73 for us. So anyway, it's going to be a great time. Really excited to have you here again. It's so much fun to create this podcast. I'm back from PodFest. I'm pumped up, ready to get it on. We're looking forward to Hamvention. A lot of great things coming the way. And uh, I'm just so excited to be here with you. I'm also excited to be able to share with you about our sponsors here on the show. Yeah, we've been sponsored from day one by Main Trading Company down in Paris, Texas. Richard and Christine Lenore started this thing in their garage. Don't all good things start in the garage? Hmm. You know what? I'll call my barn a garage for this moment and say it started in a garage as well. But, you know, it, it takes a lot to run a business, especially a mom and pop small business. My wife and I have been doing that since 2001. It's tough. It's really hard. But I tell you what, if you work hard, it pays off. And one of the ways it can pay off for you, the listener, is to do some shopping with my friends at mtcradio.com. They carry the entire line of ICOM, everything from the top to the bottom. If you need an, an HF rig, maybe just a handy talkie, maybe a replacement micro phone. You need to call them and check them out. Anything from ICOM can be found at mtcradio.com. Remember to let them know you heard about them here on Ham Radio 360 Podcast. AC9KF73. This is AE5TE73. AI6OU73. K2AMP73. K3NXU73. Okay, so we've talked about having uh, a Q&A, a follow-up, a part two to our APRS show with Kenneth Finnegan, and uh, we're going to do it right now. Kenneth, welcome back to Ham Radio 360 Podcast. Hey, Kale, thanks for having me. Yeah, the, the turnout ha- has been just phenomenal. The number of emails I've gotten from people saying, you know, they, they haven't done APRS in 10 years, and my show, this the show that we did, uh, gotten back into it has been great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we kind of tried to get people excited about it, and, and it looks like we succeeded. So thank you again for that. Um, it may be a 30-year-old technology, but it's still cool to see it working and getting people more involved in it. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So we got a lot of questions. Uh, we have some answers, and we want to just kind of dive right into those questions, if that's okay with you, listener. And uh, we want to take the first question here from Andrew. Andrew's call is Kilo Fox 7, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. Love that one. And uh, he says, I know I'm supposed to use paths like wide 1-1, but why? And what does that mean? What else might I use in my path and why? So before you answer that real quick, explain again what a path is. And then if you can kind of touch on the question there with wide one dash one or whatever he wants to use. Yeah. So to, to understand what a path is and why we need them, it, it requires a little bit of a history lesson. Okay. Right. So let's go back to 1980, if we will. Nice. 1980. F, the FCC finally authorizes amateur radio operators to operate packet radio, right? So before that, we weren't allowed to use packet on the air. Mm. Um, and so out in Tucson, the Tucson Amateur Packet Radio Corporation was founded through that. And they started developing this whole packet radio network stack, right? Because before then, like, there wasn't anything. Like, okay. nothing existed. And so they got a whole working group together. They were working with a group up in Canada. Canada um, got about a two-year head start on us, and so they had some stuff coming out of Vancouver. And so they they were looking around at that point, trying to figure out what is the cutting edge in networking technology in 1980, and they then based packet radio off of that. Right? We're, right. we're, we're getting back to amateur radio in a second, but so <laughs> 1980, TCP/IP like we use it today was not at all the clear-cut winner for networking technology. There were several different families of networking technology going on, including X25. Okay. X25 is just a different networking stack, different protocol sort of type. And at this point, the concept of dynamic routing protocols or intelligent routers like we have now today just wasn't a thing. This concept that you could take a packet, put, put it the, the address of where it was going to finally go and drop it in a mailbox like you do a letter... Mm -hmm. didn't exist for computer networks in 1980, right? And so any, any, any old, old uh, graveyards out there that can remember having to write email addresses of a whole bunch of different host names separated by exclamation marks, that's something called source, uh, source routing, okay. where you have to fully describe when you put a packet on the network exactly where it is eventually needs to go hop by hop by hop, mm. right? Okay. It, it isn't a very good system, and in the it world, the sphere of the internet, they went and you know figured out how to do dynamic routing protocols in the mid '80s, and so that you know normal users don't need to know which individual computers are linked together with you know hard telephone lines to get their email to their friend on the other coast. So that's that's the context of where amateur packet radio is starting. And so this con the, the concept of a path is when you want a packet to propagate out through the network, you need to specify which digital repeaters it'll go through as it makes this journey, right? And so for packet radio, which, you know, in the 80s and 90s was all these bulletin boards where you could send, you know, long-form messages and um, chat, much as you do like PSK31 or something, right. you would just have to describe, all right, I want to go through Digipeter, you know, K6AAA, and then for the second hop after that, I want to go through K8BBB um, and just go hop by hop through this pathway. Uh, okay. right? And so that's what paths were. And APRS, the big innovation in APRS was that they realized that this was very tedious 
having to sit at your computer and map out what your local digipeters were. Right. Because like, if you have a home station, like, sure, you can sit down and listen to the radio and see the beacons from the digipeters. And you can kind of sit there and draw a map in your notebook about where where you know the digipeters are, and which ones you have to go hop by hop. Mm-hmm. But in APRS, the concept is that you're going to be a mobile user. Right. You are dropping out of the sky, you know, and in 10 minutes you want to be functional. Right. And so they came up with this concept of aliases. So the wide alias is essentially a, quote, call sign, unquote, that every digipeter responds to. You follow me, Kale, here? Yeah. So what you're saying here is when we use wide 1-1, we're telling our our signal to go out and find anybody around me that's listening because everybody can hear wide 1-1 if they can hear my signal. Does that make sense? Is that the right question Exa- to ask? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So. The, the wide 1-1 is essentially you, instead of addressing a single specific digipeter that you want to hop through, uh-huh. you're saying you're addressing all of them at once. And so your, your packets actually ripple outwards like in a pond. Okay. Okay. So right. any, anybody that can hear that knows what to do with it then. Exactly. Okay. Um, and of course, you know, there are, there's going to be some edge cases where uh, you're not going to set up digipeters that respond to wide 1-1, you know, wide, uh, wide, but other things, but you know, the... We're, we're, we're grossly simplifying it here, and I'm skipping over about 15 years of history of them <laughs> developing this system. Right. Okay. Right. But, but that answers uh, the question. Why, uh, he knows he's supposed to use wide 1-1, and, yeah. and the reason being is so someone can hear you and digipeat your signal and move it on down the line. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. But then the question is, what does the two numbers mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because cause really what we're talking about is um, – you know, for, for the networking folk and the uh, folks in the audience, what we're essentially doing is we're, we're making a flooding multicast network where wide is this alias that a certain group of digipeters respond to, where in this case, wide is all of them. And then in individual localities, you might set up additional other aliases, okay. um, which we'll talk about later. Sure. But then there's a question of, you know, what do these two numbers mean afterwards, right? And so o- oftentimes when people are talking about this, alias system that APRS uses, they, they call it wide N-N, right? Where it's a lowercase N and then an uppercase N. Okay. So these two numbers, the first one represents how many hops did I originally request? And the second number is how many of those hops are left, right? And so wide 1-1 means I'm asking for one hop through a wide digipeter and it hasn't happened yet, right? There's still one of the one left. Right. And so if you were to then see an, a digipeter alias like wide 3-3, that would mean I'm asking for three hops through these wide digipeters and three of them are left over. The first digipeters that you know, are right around you that hear that would repeat it mm-hmm. and they'd insert their call sign into the path and then decrement the second number. So it would become K6AAA, hop used up with a little star on the end. And then wide 3-2. Ah, okay. Right? And so then every digipeter that hears K6AAA would say, oh, hey, look, there's still two of these three hops left. They'd insert their call sign in and, uh, after K6AAA and decrement it to wide 3-1. You would then go one more ring of digipeters out and they'd go, oh, hey, look. There's one hop left, and they would decrement it so the final path would be you know, K6AAA, K6BBB, K6 
K6CCC wide three with no hops left. <laughs> so th- th- this is something you can do, but just my limited knowledge is that's really not something you want to do because it's just getting you way too far away from where you are. Yeah, and remember, we're only talking about one string of digipeters going off in you know the northern direction. Right. This is happening exponentially in every direction. <laughs> and so if you were to beacon with a, a path of wide 7-7, um, like in, in here in the Silicon Valley, if I were to beacon with a path of wide 7-7, I would reach all the way to Washington and Arizona. <laughs> and nobody right? over there, so, nobody really cares what you're doing in Washington and Arizona. No, they really don't. They don't want your traffic uh, in their system. Yes. So so there, there there's a problem there. Okay. All right. And so as a as a rule of thumb, you're usually only going to ever want to ask for two hops and almost never ask more th- for more than 3. So if if you're listening to this and you're looking at your blank path field in your tracker and you want to put something in there, the easiest default answer is Wide one dash one, comma wide two dash one. Okay. Right, but I just said something that doesn't match the pattern, didn't I? Yeah, and that's because APRS is a layer upon layer upon layer of hacks. Remember, <laughs> because this whole concept of this time to live field at the end of a single call sign that gets decremented as it gets processed by digipeters that wasn't part of the AX twenty five spec when it was used for bulletin boards. Mm-hmm. And APRS has been built on generations of throw-offs from the packet radio, you know, other app, app packet radio uses that are now just laying around and not being used. Okay. And so they, in APRS, they also wanted to support what are called fill-in digipeters, right? So you've got your high-level digipeters, and then you have these smaller ones. And a fill-in digipeter is... Uh, so if you've got a high-level digipeter that covers a certain geographical area, a fill-in digipeter is a is you know something that's going to be on your house or maybe on your eaves or maybe a, only a few dozen feet up. Right. That still its coverage area fully falls inside the coverage area of this high-level digipeter, and so you're not adding any new geographical area to the network. What you're doing is you're adding an extra receiver that can help shuttle very quiet or very compromised antenna trackers up to this big network of digipeters you have on mountaintops, okay. right? Because if you've got a digipeter up on a mountaintop and you're trying to hear a you know, two-watt tracker um, in your pocket, you may not be able to reach all the way up to the mountaintop. So you have these fill-ins that, as the first hop only, can pick up your packet and shuttle it up to the mountaintop. Okay. And, and I've got the, a fill-in digipeter, and that's yeah. r- really why we put it in. Well, I was kind of for, but anyway, that that's why it's there. It's it's just listening for somebody who may be missed. Exactly, right. But they're the people building these fill-in digipeters had hardware that didn't understand this wide n-n concept, and they didn't want to buy all new TNCs just for these little fill-ins that cover no new geographical area and are just an assistance to the network. Right. And so a couple guys came up with this idea of, well, why don't we hard code an alias of wide 1-1 for these fill-in digipeters? And so these devices that don't understand this n-n time-to-live field instead just go, oh, hey, look, there is a string wide 1-1 that matches my hard-coded alias. I'll 
digipede, digipede it. Okay. And then when it gets up to the high-level digipeters, they go, oh, look, there's one hop through someone, and now there's a time-to-live wide n-n field that I can then process normally. Okay. Then you've got the problem that we're now designating wide 1-1 as a alias for the fill-ins. But how do you ask for one hop through high-level digipeters after that? Right? Because if, if you wanted to go one hop through maybe a fill-in and then two more hops afterwards, you could say wide 1-1, comma, wide 2-2. Right? So you're asking for this one special alias of wide 1-1 and then two more wide hops that you've still got two of them left. Right. And, um, and of course, if a high-level digipeter happens to hear this wide 1-1, it goes, oh, hey, look, he's asking for one hop and there's one of them left. He processes it normally. Right? And so, um, you know, that, that's why this is so clever because everyone responds to wide 1-1 and then the high-level digipeters also respond to all other permutations of these numbers. But they couldn't – there's no way then to annotate I want one hop not from fill-in digipeters, right? Because if you want one hop and there's one left, that's wide 1-1, which is in, is the fill-in alias. And so they came up with this idea of, well, why don't you beacon with a path of wide 2, but you pre-consume one of the hops? And so instead of beaconing with wide 2-2, which is two hops with two left, send it out of your tracker uh, – originally as wide 2-1 so that it's I'm, I originally asked for two hops but there's only one of them left when we start <laughs> you, 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 you right? sit around and you wonder wow how did somebody conceive that you know <laughs> but but yeah, it makes and I, sense. I actually all right and as part of my master's thesis when I was working on this I found the whole email thread where they were going through this and they're working about different permutations and all the different things that they you know, thought experimented out and, and doing it. And like, I, I saw them uh, like circling in on the, the final answer and I'm like, Oh God, like the hack, the clue just going to be, Oh, there it is. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like Raiders uh, so of yeah. the Lost start for APRS. Yes. Yes. Right. So, wow. um, so that, that's what it is. Okay. So, and, and kind of the recommended path for most mobile, uh, mobile trackers is you request one hop through fill-ins and then you request just one more hop through a high-level digipeter. So that's the wide 1-1 comma wide 2-1. And, that, and makes, so, that makes plenty of sense to me that I, I've had that question for two years now. Thank you. Yeah, right. And so it's, just, it's really, really unfortunate that the primary use case for these paths is the one exception to the rule about what the two numbers mean. <laughs> Right. But that that's the best way to set it up for folks who are just getting their feet in, just like Andrew here. You know, what do I why do I want to use that? But don't forget if you you're doing a tracker, one dash one, comma, two dash one. Yes. Okay. Right. So now let's talk about other types of trackers that aren't uh, you know, five watt or maybe a ten watt with a little antenna on maybe a vehicle or in your pocket. Okay. If you're setting up a base station at your house, as you know, an APRS node that you want to talk to people, you've probably got a nice antenna up on the eaves of your house, or maybe you've got a little tower. You might be running more than five watts. You're probably running it into like a 25 or 50 watt mobile radio. Mm -hmm. And so you really probably don't necessarily need the services of the fill-in digipeter down the block from you. Right. Not that there's another digipeter anywhere close to you, Kale, but, you know, we can always hope. In, in the future sense. We're talking, you know, yeah, future right, tense Yeah, right, you know, in the, ideal, <laughs> in the ideal world. Right. And so 
as a fixed radio, you know, as as a non-mobile APRS node that doesn't need services from fill-ins, you should just never use the wide 1-1 alias. So if you want to go out one hop, you use wide 2-1. If you want to go out two hops, you use wide 2-2. And if you want to go out three hops, you do wide 3-3, right? And so you're, you're just never going to need this wide 1-1 alias if you're not in a compromised antenna sort of situation. Okay. Let, let me stop All you there right. real quick and just ask you this. Uh, and this is, this is redundant, but I w- I'm going to say it because I'm thinking it. That means maybe somebody else is. Going back, if we're doing a mobile portable rig, okay, we, do, mm-hmm. we have two aliases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're setting up a base station with a uncompromised, higher gain antenna, higher power radio, we use one alias, well, yeah. And that, that's if, kind of the rule if, of thumb. It doesn't have to be set in stone, but it's kind of the rule of thumb. Yeah, and if and if Digipeters were intelligent enough so that the fill-ins didn't need this separate special alias, right. you could just always use one alias that is just has, you know, like, I want service from wide Digipeters, mm-hmm. and here's my number of time to live, right? Right, but um, we're not there. And Well, that depends who you ask, <laughs> right? Because... Um, APRX, the Digipeter software that I maintain, mm-hmm. I'm not limited to running on a 25-year-old Z80 microcontroller with a UV EEPROM in it. I'm, I'm running oh. on a full Linux board. So I, I, can, I, I can program in as much intelligence as I want. Oh. And so APRX d- actually doesn't depend on wide 1-1 aliases. It's intelligent enough that it looks at the whole path and only digipedes you if it is the first hop. Okay. So... Okay. Um, but that right. could be a, a that's a bit, whole other show, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's like like it's a little bit non-standard, and I, I catch flack from some of the old guys because oh, it doesn't support wide one one. I'm like, well, yeah, but it just always services the first hop, which is exactly what you want. Yeah, yeah. Because some people will accidentally put a wide one one alias not in the first field, right? So let's imagine that you beaconed with an alias of wide two one one one. So you you go up and you light up all the high level digipeters around you, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe there's three or four of them within range. Okay. And so from these mountaintops, they then repeat you with the first top consumed and then this wide one dash one alias after them. So the fifteen fill in digipeters in all the little nooks and crannies of your local geography all now respond to the second hop and you light up every digipeter in the county. Wow. <laughs> it sends right. you it, it sends you back to where you came from. Yeah, right. And so there, there's this problem, you know, there's this problem. The, the fundamental problem with the source routing is that it's very sensitive to every user needs to not misconfigure their own tracker mm-hmm. because a single user beaconing wide 7 7 takes down the whole state. Yeah, yeah. So, right. so to go right back to the beginning, if you're setting up a portable tracker, low power, handy talky kind of gig, portable like you're taking with you in your backpack, wide 1 yeah. 1 dash comma wide two dash one that's what you want okay if we're going to do a mobile station or a base station high power uncompromised antenna uh high gain antenna something like that high level digipeter like you like to call it uh we're doing two dash one and that's it yep or if you maybe maybe if you want to go two hops out wide two dash -dash two two. okay right all right so we just we just set some unofficial standards here on the show yes right (laughs) now there's there's this third class of station that is also very important to talk about, okay. and that is airborne stations. Uh, like balloons and, and airplanes. Balloons, and... airplanes, those sorts of things, right? Okay. Because when you're at 60,000 or 100,000 feet, 
you don't need digipeters. Okay. So what do you do? Right. You, you beacon with no path at all. Right. Is, and, and this is something that is very contentious. And I've, I've had many arguments with the high altitude balloon guys. But when you're beaconing from 100,000 feet, right. just beacon with a path that is completely empty because you don't need any digipeter service because you have a coverage area that is 10 or 100 times larger than any digipeter that you can see. Right. So you're doing, the, you're doing a third of the country at the same time. Yes, right. And so it and it and it happens every every few months or so that someone launches a balloon with a half watt tracker on it that is beaconing every thirty seconds with a path of wide two dash one or a wide one dash one. And I've I've seen one of these like uh these balloons come out of the Bay Area all the time and so it goes up to sixty thousand feet and is lighting up digipeters all the way from Los Angeles to the Oregon border. <laughs> Every 30 seconds, right? And so it's, it's, you don't need it. It's just eating traffic right? or, yeah, or blocking right? traffic, but, whatever the term to use. Yeah, right. And so it's one of these things you're consuming so much of the uh, network capacity for this one tracker that doesn't need it because usually these guys are really only interested in it getting into the internet, mm-hmm. right? And so just as you can, just as you're lighting up 30 or 40 digipeters, you're also hitting 50 or 100 internet gateways that are all hearing you directly before the digipeters echo you again, <laughs> right? And, and this is one of the things where on, if you look at some of the APRS websites, they don't really give firm guidance on this. They'll go, well, if you really need to, you can use one hop, but you maybe shouldn't, uh, right? And I'm telling, I'm telling the high-altitude balloon guys right now, do not use hops, right? Well, just if, for, just, you're not scolding someone. You're just saying it's in the best interest of APRS. Yeah. You don't need it. Yeah, you, you don't need it, right? And the, the counter argument from the high altitude balloon guys listening to, the pop, to listen to their phones right now yelling at us is, <laughs> well, but what about once the balloon pops and it lands the ground? And in that case, it very is legitimate to, like, once, once you're no longer at 60,000 feet and you're now sitting in a ravine somewhere, yeah. maybe you do need a digipeter hop. But many of these trackers that they're deploying are actually intelligent enough to be able to tell, oh, I'm, I no longer have an altitude of 60,000 feet. They can switch paths dynamically and go from a empty path to a wide one dash one path. And there's a whole right? other and show topic right there. Wow, I'm making a yeah, list. There's a whole, <laughs> right? Yeah, like we're, we're cranking these things out here. Um, but yeah, so to, to to summarize, mobile trackers wide one dash one comma wide two dash one. Okay. Ground stations or fixed locations wide two dash one wide two or or wide two dash two. And high altitude, high altitude trackers in planes and balloons, empty path. But once you cut the balloon and fall back to the ground, your trackers possibly support a way to dynamically switch to a second path, so that when you're out there looking for it, you can find find your tracker sitting in a hillside. I got you. That makes sense, yeah. Andrew. That was a great question from Andrew, man. It, that's a that's a segment's worth of question. And uh, it's it's one that I could never, you know. I could, people would say, "Oh, well, you, you you're using the wrong path," and I'm like, "Why?" You know. And of course, no one can explain it to you. Yeah, right. And it's it's this this giant collect, you know, congestive collapse that you can cause across the whole state. Right, right. I got you. Okay. Well, we're going to come right back with Kenneth Finnegan, and uh, we're going to continue to learn about APRS here on Ham Radio 360 Podcast. 
Ellacraft Radio is hands-on ham radio, and you can find all that you need to know about them, all their tremendous products, and more at ellacraft.com. KO4L73. K4GDL73. 73, y'all. This is Kilo 5 Charlie Lima Mike. This is Kilo 5 Romeo Hotel Delta. 73. K7OJL73. All right, uh, I got another question for you, Kenneth. This one comes from Ryan, who is Whiskey Charlie Six Quebec from Twitter. He asks, "Why is it when I switch on my APRS and there are two digipeters within two miles, I get nothing for spots on APRS.fi with my five watt hand- handheld?" Yeah, so that's a good that's a good question, um, and it, that kind of comes back to distinguishing between the different types of APRS infrastructure. Right, because you've got both digipeters and internet gateways, and the two of them are different things. And so, digipeters extend your range on the local RF side, and so that when there's two digipeters within range of him, he's probably getting out pretty far locally. But if there isn't any internet gateways at all within range of him or those digipeters, he may be going around on the RF locally, but he won't be making it back to the APRS internet system, APRS IS. I right? got you. And so it, it may be that he is locally showing up on other people's radios if they were listening, but since there's no internet gateways, he never gets onto the internet. And APRS FI, all that is is another client of the APRS IS system, and all it does is it listens to the stream of packets on the internet and saves it in its database. And so if he never makes it to the internet, he never makes it onto APRS.fi. And, and that kind of shows us that there are, there are three possibilities of this APRS thing. It, it's local RF mm-hmm. it, through through the wides. It's uh, the internet or a combination of both. And and really, it may be one of those things, if you want to kind of see some of the stuff on the internet, it might be a good idea for somebody like uh, Ryan here to put up a, an eye gate, which are pretty simple to do. I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about that later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because um, uh, – Getting, uh, setting up an internet gateway, it can be as simple as just finding some old like Radio Shack scanner you've got, audio cable to your computer, and that's all, essentially all you need for a, a real basic eye gate. Nice, nice. It doesn't have to be hard. Although Kale yeah. will try to make it hard, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> I mean, come, why not? Okay. All right. Next question here. We've got it from uh, some some Reddit readers. Is that what you call them? If they're on Reddit, are yeah. they Redditors? Uh, Reddit uh, Redditors, yeah. Redditors. Yeah, Redditors. Guys, I don't get over there to Reddit very much, but it doesn't mean I don't love you and I don't appreciate you. It's just <laughs> I, I haven't. I just don't get a lot of time over there, so please excuse me. And if you see me, say, hey, maybe I'll come back more often. Jason's call I have here is Alpha Kilo Zero Whiskey. Nice call, by the way. He says, I can't seem to get APRS messaging to work. I can send a test message to myself, our WX bot, and can see it show up on aprs.link under message history. But the message never makes it back to my radio. Do you have any idea on what's going on? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, so uh, probably what's happening here is in his local network, he's got, I mean, so obviously he's making it to, um, what, he, he's using aprs.link, which I think is much like aprs.fi, right? It's one of the many websites online that listen to the IS system. Okay. Um, and so what might be going on here is that he has what's called a receive-only eye gate. Remember how I said that you can set up an eye gate with just a Radio Shack yeah, scanner? Yeah, scanner, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. right? And so on his radio, he beacons the message, 
The message gets picked up by this receive-only eye gate and gets gated to the internet system. But the the last part of a message is that the destination for the message needs to send an acknowledgement packet, and that needs to make it back to him. Mm-hmm. But if he's messaging someone that's not on his local RF and is instead somewhere else, you know, across the internet, um, that packet's coming back to his eye gate, his nearby eye gate online. But if his nearby internet gateway is receive only and doesn't have a transmitter, then it's never going to be able to get it back to his radio. And so what you need locally, right? So there, there are these receive only eye gates, mm-hmm. which help you show up on the internet. But if you want to have bi-directional conversations with someone else, uh, you need what's called a RF gate, right? Which is an internet gateway that has a transmitter that can gateway back onto RF as well. And so if there's no RF gates in range, all of his messages will make it to the other end fine, but none of their acknowledgments mm-hmm. or their re- their response messages will actually make it back to him. It just kind of comes near him and stops because it can't find any RF to ex- escape on. Yeah, it'll it'll send it to all the nearby eye gates that picked him up originally, and they'll all go, great, I don't have a transmitter, <laughs> and do nothing with the packet. Uh, real quick, is it really hard to build one of those? It's a little bit more difficult um, because at that point you need to both get receive audio wired up. You need your transmit audio wired up. Um, you need to wire up a push to talk uh, mechanism somehow for your radio. Um, and then you also need to set your uh, tr- uh, deviation levels correctly, um, which on Bell 202, which is the modem that APRS uses, it's a little bit easier than on some other data modems. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the, the the trick that I've been told for people uh, – how I do it is um, I just use a terminal node controller in what's called KISS mode. And so um, the TNC handles all the radio interfacing, and then a, it has a serial port that goes back to my computer. And then to set the deviation levels, I use a service monitor, which I don't think most people have in their shack since they're <laughs> you know several thousand dollars. Probably not. Um, so I can appreciate Right, I can appreciate why most people just don't happen to have a service monitor on their bench. <laughs> um, but kind of with Bell 202, kind of the trick is you can turn up the transmit audio level on the TNC until you don't hear it get any louder and then kind of turn it halfway down again. Okay. Right. Because, because your radio will start limiting and clipping it. And right. so you then turn it back back about halfway and that'll be passably good. Just good enough to hear it and get yeah. it back out. Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, if, if you have a service monitor, what you want to set is, you know, three to three and a half kilohertz deviation. Like that's the number that you want, but most people don't have VHF deviation meters. Mm-hmm. So they just use your volume control. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So, it, so like when I'm when I'm setting up a uh, RF gate, I'll hook it up to my service monitor, put the TNC in tune mode, and then it's usually got like a little potentiometer or there's a variable in the settings, and I just turn it up until the deviation gets where I want it on on the radio. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good answer. We have another redditor here. His call is uh, Kilo Delta Seven Mike Romeo Juliet. His name is Adam. And Adam says, what are the implications regulation-wise with running an internet-to-RF gateway? And he explains that he is interested in an SMS gate. I'm assuming that's what that means. And it Mm -hmm. seems to work well for messages sent from the radio to SMS. However, my area doesn't have any gateways which can take packets from the internet and retransmit them onto RF, which we just discussed. I know Mm -hmm. that there are some worries they're around the fact that only licensed hams should be able to have messages transmitted out onto the ham bands. How does this apply to an APRS gateway like this? 
And if I try to build something that only retransmits from senders who are registered with the system, will that cover it? Yeah, so this is kind of one of the sticky issues that um, we debate constantly on the APRS SIG and really comes down to exactly how you interpret Part 97 of the federal code, which, of course, all hams love to give their opinions on how to interpret Title 47, Part 97. Yeah. Um, right, and, and it comes down to, you know, the this third-party traffic um, concerns on the automatic message relay systems, right? Because uh, APRS, uh, the kind of the best way to define APRS in the context of Title 47, of Part 97, is that it is a uh, automatic message system, which gives it a couple, like it, it drops into some category there that kind of fits most of APRS's definitions. Mm-hmm. But there's that problem of third-party traffic. And once you hook up RF gates, you're now passing third-party traffic from the internet. And that's problematic. Uh, how the APRS went about this originally was they... When you try and connect to the APRS IS as either an internet gateway or as like a tracker on your phone using IP directly to APRS IS, um, is you have to use a passcode because it's a you know typically about a five-digit number. Um, and the the concept originally was you would contact one of the developers of APRS. You would give them your call sign. They would verify that you're an amateur. And they would then issue you back this passcode. The problem was that, and right, and so that's the concept, right? And so at that mm-hmm. point, you've confirmed that this person is an amateur and you're good. The issue is that this 10-digit number or this five-digit number, it was just a hash of your call sign. And so once this algorithm for the passcodes leaked out, you can now go online and just hash your call sign and there's your passcode. And so, you know, like any, like any, like any security system that was designed by not security professionals, <laughs> um, it's pretty weak and it's not ideal. And there's been efforts to try and move the APRS IS over to something like SSL, mm-hmm. uh, for authentication using like the logbook of the world certificates. Uh, but at this point, how it stands is that, um, we do quote authenticate people using this APRS IS passcode. And personally, I find that that that's good enough for me. I know a lot of people that find that not acceptable and will refuse to run their own RF gates. So I, I've not heard of any real issues with abuse of people logging to the IS that aren't hams. And I'm really hard pressed to imagine if anyone were to accidentally pass inappropriate third-party traffic, that the FCC would legally go after you. Um, that, that, like the, the, the problems that we're exposed to due to this poor security system are pretty far down there as far as issues on the amateur bands. Right. Yeah. Well, right. I just, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, who in the world would want to fool with this if they weren't geeky like us? You know? Yeah, it, you know, of all the targets online, this one is relatively unattractive, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But that that's a bad argument to use, right? And so I, I think there's – it's one of those things that everyone individually kind of needs to make the decision, are they willing to run an RF gate or not? Mm. So gotcha. – um, and then just kind of answer the the sub-question that you were um, – you didn't quite ask in there for SMS gate. Yes. Um, so SMS gate is one of these internet-connected services 
that gateway is between APRS and other networks, right? And so SMS, uh, SMS GTE, uh, SMS mm-hmm. gate is one of them. Email dash two is another one. And all they do is they gateway APRS messages onto other systems. And so SMS gate is actually a system where you can send an APRS message to that call sign, SMS GTE, with a phone number and a message. And it will actually relay it to that cell phone number as a text message. Yeah, I remember reading about that somewhere. Maybe QST had an article a few years back or something. But it was almost like uh, it was got, maybe it was just just learned or, or just heard about or somebody just got it out. But it was real hot for like 30 minutes and just kind of went away. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I've, I've actually been working with uh, help helping the developer SMS gate uh, kind of add some more features to it so that you can like save self uh, specific numbers right. as like aliases and stuff. Well, that'd be cool. um, it's a pretty, pretty neat system. And I, I have made a point of uh, kicking him a few bucks on PayPal because nice. it does cost him uh, something like, you know, 10 cents per text message that he gateways or something, Whoa. but he's willing to, he's willing to do it. So is this something like uh, your mom could text you through that way? On the way, yeah. Okay, okay, and yeah. it, and it's kind of cloudy just a little bit because of third party traffic, but it's still going to an amateur. Yes, okay. right. And so he he is relaying it from a non licensed user onto our licensed network, and then your local RF gate is passing that third party traffic from the internet to the RF, and it's real hazy about exactly where in there the appropriateness of the message was confirmed, but. Right. Um, again, it, it just hasn't been an issue. And even if there was an inappropriate message on APRS, I'm not convinced that that's really going to cause anyone problems. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost in not to, not to just keep beating this horse, but it's almost like, uh, a new version of the national traffic stuff where they just pass it around and a guy calls you on the phone and gives you your message. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks for that one. And uh, again, thank you, Adam, for that that question. Another Reddit tour here. We have a, a question from Jeff, who has a pretty cool call. I like this one. KK9JEF. That, uh, that makes sense to me. Jeff asks here, are there bands beside two meters that have active APRS presence? Is there a case or a use case for using more than one band or a different band? Yeah, so that's a good question. First of all, hi, Jeff. Um, Jeff was actually my first exposure to amateur radio back cool. in middle school. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, as, right? He was, a, <laughs> he, was, he was one of my buddies back in middle school, and um, he's now over in Chicagoland and got a new call sign. Um, but, yeah, so his question. Uh, there are bands other than two meters, right, because the continental, you know, the North American cont- continental frequency that we all kind of agreed on was 144.39, right? Remember that. Right. Um, there is also APRS traffic on 30 meters. Robust pack. Is that no? Wait a minute. That's not what they call robust packet. But uh, well, so uh, we're now we're now venturing into, into parts of APRS <laughs> that I know <laughs> less <laughs> about. <Yeah>. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so 30 meters. If you think about it, APRS on 30 meters is really cool because all of a sudden you don't need digipeters anymore. Right. Because you can you can beacon on the west coast and be picked up by eye gates on the east coast, straight simplex, mm-hmm. right? And so um, thirty meters, there are advantages. And so like when you are way out there, um, and there is no local eye gates or digipeters, thirty meters um, is a real attractive option. 
with the disadvantage, of course, that you then have to have an antenna for 30 meters, which is probably a bit more difficult to have in your HT or <laughs> on your car than a two meter whip. Um, but uh, you, you of course, asked, you know, you alluded to, well, is that a robust packet? Um, and the question is, and the answer is, I'm not entirely sure what it is these days. Okay. Because it was originally Bell 103, which is the classic 300 baud HF packet. And then they added PSK 63 on about the same frequency, but you could do either one. And then there was like robust packet. And then there was like, I've heard mentions of like one or two other modems. So I, as far as I can tell, around this one watering hole frequency that they've got set up, there's about four or five different modems being used by different trackers. Okay. Okay. Right. And, and, and that, that makes sense to me is just, there, it's a thirty. It's on the thirty meter band, so it's a lot more broad necessarily than just knocking it down to one forty four three nine. Yeah, um, and and so and, and this is of, of course like all APRS um, documentation. There isn't. I mean, there's there's plenty. There's a huge website. You know, long long you know wall of texts on the whole history of all these different modems that they've used. But no, even I don't know. If I were to set up a 30 meter tracker right now, what modem to use? Uh, so, okay. <laughs> um, how how to get on 30 meters is something that I don't know anything about. Well, Jeff, um, Jeff than, you might have just opened up a whole other can of worms for a future show. All <laughs> oh, right. Um, as as far as other than 30 meters, um, there are some small local networks that are set up on different frequencies. Um, so some some local groups will set up APRS on UHF, um, particularly uh, particularly if if for an event, you wanted to use a VHF repeater for your voice communications. Um, there's, of course, then an advantage to setting up an APRS network on UHF so that you don't desense your radios when the tracker goes off. Mm. And so then if you, ju- you just have the problem that you then need to build a whole infrastructure on some other frequency than 144.39. But it, it's certainly possible, and there are some pockets of places where people do it. And that leads us to our next question from Pongo Triple Zero from Reddit as well. He just asked, mm-hmm. "Why are we all using just one APRS frequency? Back in the '90s, we made use of a number of frequencies. Is there some operational advantage gained by using only one frequency rather than gatewaying across different freaks?" Yeah, right. And so um, back in the '90s, he's probably referring to like the bulletin board system, where in the bulletin board system, there was what ten packet frequencies uh, centered around 145. Wow. Right, and so it was you know one forty five oh one, one forty five oh three, and one forty four dot nine nine, one forty four dot nine seven. You know, and they went out for hundred kilohertz, um, and that made a lot of sense on bulletin boards because a lot of the bulletin board frequency time would be tied up on large text file transfers um, when someone logged into a bulletin board and then started downloading all of that week's bulletins. <laughs> APRS, on the other hand, remember it's a very short, fast kind of tactical information passing. And so there will never be any bulk file transfers happening on APRS. And so having more than one frequency would just divide people up, right? Remember that the objective here is we want to be able to drop out of the sky, listen to APRS for 10 minutes and know everything is going on. Yeah. And so it's really the, the value to APRS is that it is this one frequency everywhere. And so there, there, you know, there are some other, uh, tactical information systems other than APRS that use more than one frequency. I mean, a good example of that is the AIS system that boats use. 
Um, so if, if, if you want to look into it, feel free to go read the uh, AIS spec. It's a great read. I've, I've done it. Um, but that's mainly just because I'm a nerd. Uh, but <laughs> APRS just uses the one frequency mainly just because that's the one that we all agreed on. And the unlike other systems like AIS, APRS trackers tend not to be frequency agile. So it's not like it could switch back and forth between different frequencies dynamically. So okay. it's just because that's that's how the system grew up. Makes sense to me. All right. Appreciate you guys, uh, Pongo and Jeff as well. Hi, Dan, KB6NU here. Whether you're studying for your tech license or looking to upgrade to general or extra, you should check out my no-nonsense amateur radio license study guides. Written in my easy-to-understand, no-nonsense style, they really are the easiest way to learn what you need to know to pass the test. And they are always up to date. The PDF version of the Technician Class Study Guide is free on my website at kb6nu.com podcast. And all my study guides are available in print, PDF, Kindle, and EPUB versions. Let me help you have more fun with ham radio. Go to kb6nu.com podcast and get started today. KB7VML73. KC5HWB73. KD5AT73. KF5WUF73. KF7AXB73. KG5IWL73. All right, so between questions, we, uh, we we do our best here on the show not to mispronounce anybody's name, even George's, although I still struggle there. Uh, John Leonardelli. I didn't say that right. How did you say it? Uh, Leonardelli? Leonard, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sorry, John. Sorry, John. Um, and I recognize John's name, I think from Facebook, maybe, and Twitter. Well, he's from Twitter here, so maybe that's how I recognize it. Uh, John asked a great question, and I hear people talking about this on and off on Twitter. Because I follow a lot of the AMSAT guys there. Uh, but this is a great question, I think. How do you digipeat through the International Space Station? Right. How cool is that, that the <laughs> International Space Station has an APRS digipeter on it? Yeah. I don't have APRS working, but the International Space Station does. Well, awesome. kind of. Kind because of. their VHF radio died. That's true. That's true. Right. So the on the International Space Station, there is an APRS digipeter. Uh, the I believe the call sign for the International Space Station they use is A-R-I-S-S, right? So Alpha Romeo India Sierra Sierra, which I think is stands for Amateur Radio on the ISS. Okay. Um, and s- typically what they are on is the APRS satellite constellation frequency because there's actually a constellation of APRS satellites. Uh-huh. So normally it's on 145 decimal... 825 megahertz as with a few other APRS satellites. And again, this is one of these parts of APRS that I, I don't try and keep up with which satellites are functional these days and which ones are not. Right. So normally you would just get on 145.825. You would set up your tracker to um, begin with a path of ARISS, right, instead of wide 2-1 or something. Mm-hmm. And then you would um, begin your packet. Uh, pr- presumably, you would have like a Yagi antenna, and you would have uh, looked up the um, kind of the best passes of the International Space Station, so you can make sure that you can actually see it. <laughs> and then you would just beacon it out there. 
it would bounce off the International Space Station and other people would see it. And so someone else then might actually try and trade a message back with you. Right. So you can have a uh, APRS QSO through the International Space Station. It's pretty sweet, man. Yeah. Super neat. Um, I believe it. I believe it also responds to the ali- the Digipeter alias for all of the APRS satellites, which I think is APRSAT, APRSAT. Okay. Right. So um, I think if you use that alias, you will not only bounce off the International Space Station, but other satellites as well. Um, that being said, the SpaceX Falcon launch. Uh, what, a few weeks ago at this point, mm-hmm. did deliver a new VHF radio. And so I don't know what the s- current status of that getting installed and when they're going to switch over back to this VHF frequency. Um, I think right now the International Space Station's on a UHF frequency, which I, th- as best I can gather from the dozen different websites that present themselves as a definitive source on APRS on the IS, um, I think it's on four thirty seven decimal five five zero. Okay, okay, and right. and we'll we'll try to find some of those shows to link in our show notes or those sites to link in our show notes for you guys if you're interested in that uh, to to learn more. And the funny thing about it is, last week I was at the Kennedy Space Center and that never even crossed my mind. So yep. sorry, I should have done better. It's well, okay. Yeah, but. Um, but yeah, and it's one of these things where you know it it it, it will always change, and so you just kind of kind of plug into the right mailing lists and Facebook groups, and you'll probably be able to find out what's going on. Ah, okay, cool, cool. Yeah. All right, and uh, John, sorry about the name, but we really appreciate you listening and sending your question in. All right, so uh, we got another question here through email from Eric, who we both spend time with on Twitter. His call yep. is uh, Victor Echo Three Echo Alpha Lima, and uh, this email. Was, uh, was from Eric, and it says, In the fall, when I was closing up our summer cabin for the winter, it occurred to me that there might be a way to use APRS to monitor the cabin over the winter. The cabin has no internet or phone, so an alarm system is out of the question and probably overkill. He had a thought to use an Arduino and some sort of sensors to have APRS system beacon when the sensors were in normal or trip status. There is an APRS digipeter about 10 miles away, so getting a signal wouldn't be a problem. And uh, he says he assumes that he could run some Arduino-based weather station setups. Uh, I've seen and just replaced the temp weather type sensors for the monitoring systems that he'd like to use. So that's pretty. That's a pretty sweet idea. Is that something that's feasible for APRS? Absolutely. It, right. APRS is not just limited to vehicle tracking, and this sort of application where you're monitoring other sorts of systems with it. Mm-hmm is definitely within the scope of what APRS was desired to do. Um, the, the weather station idea is, you know, is on the right path, and it's a little bit unlikely that you'll be able to find something off the shelf that will do everything that he wants to do here. Right. But APRS has, you know, of course, this weather station setup which if you were to hook up other sensors to it would probably get pretty confusing for other people seeing these weather reports saying that the current wind direction is, you know, not wet. Um, <laughs> right. That's, that's, and so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that may not be a great thing to do unless he's setting up a weather station to use that packet format, but there is a telemetry packet format, right? Okay. APRS has a telemetry system that supports five analog values. So it would be like the temperature in the room, the voltage on his battery bus, things like that. And eight 
binary values of like the flood sensor is going off, the door is open, I have detected motion, that sort of thing. Um, those sorts of telemetry is supported. And so he, he could set up some sort of Arduino or controller or a Raspberry Pi sort of thing mm-hmm. that t- takes in all these sensor, sensors and assembles a telemetry packet and puts it out periodically just to give him some information and state on the cabin. Uh, I would I would say that the, really the only caveat on that would be you need to be you know there's stuff if you're if you're really only using that for saving yourself the cost of an alarm system uh, that do, kind of doesn't go with the spirit of amateur radio but if you're doing it mainly as a oh neat you know you know kind of a neat science experiment and expanding the art sort of you know part uh, part oh, I guess he's not even uh, uh, U.S., but uh, kind of the amateur radio learning about radio sort of thing. Yeah, um, I think that would that would definitely be the sort of thing that you could do with it. Yeah, it sounds to me like a, an excellent workbench topic for the uh, the workbench guys to to develop something right? like that out. Yeah. Exactly. So as long as he writes an article about it and posts it on Twitter, <laughs> like it's totally fine. That's a great question, and you know, to me, thinking now, thinking down that direction. Um, in in his case, in this cabin that he's got, there's there's no, you know, nothing there. There's no phone, no internet connection. Uh, it's you know his only connection back to the property, um, and I like the idea. I do. I think that's a great question, Eric. Thank you very much for uh, for sharing that with us. The next one we have here is from Jim, and also uh, read a tour. His call is Victor Echo Five, Echo India Sugar. Says, do people run mobile eye gates? Is there anything a person should know before building a mobile eye gate? Yeah, and so this this comes up every once in a while. And so what he's thinking about doing is setting up an eye gate like you would in your house, but instead of using your house's internet connection, installing it in his car and having it tethered off of his cell phone. Okay. Um, and a lot of people now are actually tethering them off of their cars because a bunch of cars now come with hotspots in them. Right. And with internet gate, and and this is one of these things where again, there's all sorts of debate. There's lots of different opinions on it. Um, internet gateways, mobile like this, I don't think is a big problem. I think it's it's one of these things where I, I don't think it will cause any problems for anyone. It will be a little bit confusing because afterwards, if other people are looking at their logs to see where they got i gated from, um, it's going to show that they're i gated by some RV that's now two states over. And that's going to be kind of strange, right? Um, the the because we, this debate happens a lot for digipeters. Is people are very adamant that you do not want digipeters on vehicles. I gates it's less important, but I'm kind of the opinion if you're going to go through all this effort of building the hardware for an internet gateway and get it working, um, why only put it in your car? Because your your car is only six feet off the ground, mm-hmm. and so if you're going to build this all this I gate hardware i would i would instead encourage you to go find a 40 foot tower somewhere or go find a mountaintop and put it there because it's then useful for everyone over a bigger distance than only the five or ten percent of the time that you're driving your vehicle only for the people within a few miles of you and so it's not a bad idea mm-hmm. um it's not it's not the first eye gate i would set up Okay, so instead of that, uh, let's just say that he drives a lot and he's stuck in traffic. It'd be better to find someone that lives beside the interstate highway that maybe maybe has some elevation that would share some internet with you and, and put it there. Yeah, right. Okay. Because then it's the same har- same hardware cost, 
but it's useful the other 95% of the time. I got you. I like that answer. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate that as, as well. Very good. All right. Uh, you guys will recognize the next call sign here. Uh, this was also from Reddit, and it's Sterling Coffee. His call is November 0, Sierra, Sierra, Charlie. It's one of the zero only zero calls I can say and not mess up usually. It's probably because... I know Sterling, we've had him on the show, <laughs> familiar with his call, maybe. So those other ones that kill me. All right, Sterling sent us a list, and uh, it, it's quite a list, but we're going to go through them here. And Sterling, thank you for these, mes- these uh, this message and these questions. Uh, what is the next generation of APRS? What do we say, Kenneth? Uh, the next generation of APRS is something that hasn't come up yet, okay. right? It, the, and, it's, and it's one of these tough things where a lot of people will come in and say APRS is ridiculous. It's only twelve hundred baud. We're using twenty, you know, thirty-year-old technology. We should come up with something better. And it, it's one of those things that you will get a very negative response on the mailing list when you come in with an attitude like that. Mm. And so most of these guys are a real flash in the pan. Um, they work on it for a few months. They'll set up a GitHub. They'll maybe get two or three other people working on it, and then it'll disappear. And so what the next generation of APRS is is I don't know. It's going to be it's going to be pretty amazing, uh, whatever it is. If you can manage to convince the what thirty to I I don't even know what the number of APRS nodes are these days, but it's something in like the tens of thousands. Wow! And so APRS has gotten a long time to really grow in, and so the next generation of APRS is going to be something very different. Okay. Okay. He says, "How can we come closer to a system like the ADSB airplane tracking?" And yeah, so so AD, ADSB, you know, like just as AIS is for boats, ADSB is for for planes, and both of them are really good tracking systems. Mm-hmm. But the the problem is, they have a couple significant advantages over APRS. They are centrally controlled, right? And so, like every every airplane is required to spend the money to install an ADSB system correctly. Yes, mandated. It's law. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like and that's fantastic. I wish that we could mandate by law that all the Digipeter guys have to fix their settings on APRS, but it's not happening. And the 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 scope and the objectives for ADSB is much much smaller than APRS, right? APRS is trying to be this universal tactical information system. Mm-hmm. ADSB only tells you where they are and what their heading is and where they're going. Okay, and so um, it. ADSB has some very impressive performance, but because its scope and what they're trying to achieve is very well defined. And so a lot of APRS's shortcomings versus something like that kind of comes down to the fact that it's just an earlier system, it's a simpler system, and it's trying to do a lot more. Okay. He asked here, uh, number two question is, how is APRS developed? And is it developed? And is it developed? Um, yeah, so so back in the late 90s and real early 2000s, there was an APRS working group formally existing. And they had, um, I think most of their meetings were centralized around the digital communications conference that Tapper and AWRL set, puts on, um, which is a great conference. If you're interested in packet radio or software-defined radio, um, I, I presented a chapter of my thesis at the digital communications conference, and it's, it's a bunch of great guys. Um, but as for, you know, so they, they managed to put out the APRS 1.0 spec, which is like a, what, like a hundred page PDF or something. They put that out. And then as far as I can tell, 
that whole working group kind of disassembled. And it has, at this point, just been a whole bunch of guys on a mailing list debating about it and posting stuff up in various places, right? And so that's that's how APRS ends up being so confusing <laughs> a decade and a half later. Right. And so how is it developed? It's a bunch of guys on the mailing list. Is it developed? I'm still on the fence. <laughs> it's, it's developing. Yeah, something. Yeah, number three, where does APRS fall flat? And this is a tough question, right? Because there's, there's a, a dozen different places that APRS could be better. Um, if I were to say one thing, I would say APRS falls flat on its documentation. Mm. The second place that APRS falls flat is really actually behaving the same everywhere. Um, and a lot of that is because there's different – APRS spans a whole bunch of different beasts – Right. You can you compare somewhere like California, where we've got six thousand foot mountaintops Mm -hmm. to pretty much anywhere else where you don't have six thousand foot mountaintops. And it it's functionally just a different animal there. And so when you try and APRS kind of falls flat in trying to be the same thing in these wildly different areas Mm -hmm. where I think APRS needs to be a little bit more flexible and forgiving about what the local network topology looks like. Than it does. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, what about the, uh, what is the architecture of APRS.IS? Yeah. So this is the APRS internet system. Okay. The APRS IS started as what was called the core servers. And so it was, um, I think, I think that group is up to about nine servers now. So it's nine servers that exist on the internet and your internet gateways or your internet-connected clients would connect to one of those. And those nine servers are kind of in this mesh so that they all send all the packets to each other and trade them so that they all have this you know, full unified view of what all the APRS IS traffic looks like. Um, I think there was political problems or there was like a technical issue or something with that. And so there was in this second set of servers called the Tier 2 servers that were set up. The tier two servers have five hub servers, again, in a dense mesh, and then about 75 um, tier two servers hanging off of them. So at this point, the topology of the APRS IS system looks like at the top, you've got these five hub servers that are all meshed together. And hanging off of them that your iGate can connect to is the nine core servers and about 50 or 75 of these tier two servers. Um, and the, the, the tier two networks on APRS2.net and they offer a couple different DNS, um, uh, DNS names that will just pick, give you one of the servers. And so, um, if you want to, if, when you're setting up your, uh, iGate, typically if you put rotate.aprs2.net, that'll just kind of give you any one of the 50 or 75 available servers. That makes sense. Even to me. Oh, well, I, I know I'm doing good then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've talked about this a couple of times, uh, but, but let's address it again real quickly. What are the uses of APRS that aren't explicitly GPS tracking? Message passing, telemetry, weather, uh, local uh, objects like repeaters, frequencies, the list goes on. Yeah, yeah. All right. I love this question because I, I type like this sometimes too, Sterling. So it's okay. It's not just a millennial thing. Why, period, do, period, all, period, APRS, period, websites, period, 
suck? Question mark. I have been asking that question for years. And where's the documentation? So why do all APRS websites suck? And where's the documentation? And 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 that just kind of comes back to there is no central authority on APRS, yeah. right? And so a lot of it is there's been several generations of people put up websites. They'll they'll put a lot of effort into it for a while, and then other people come in and go, well, that's not really right, and I'm going to go set up my own thing. And so it's it's just that it has been around for 30 years, and most amateurs just aren't good at setting up documentation and web, online presences. Which is which is evident when you look at different club sites. Not everybody's as bad, but most of them are. No offense, guys. Right. Sorry. It's the truth. Yeah. If your site looks bad, you should hire somebody, pay them 500 bucks, and make it look pretty. Yeah, Y'all because websites are hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and, and he mentions your master thesis, which is a master's thesis, by the way. Uh, he says, can't we just put this all on GitHub? Uh, we could, but... Um, a lot, I think a lot of the issue here is that there there are parts of APRS, like there there are a lot of the gritty details that um, a lot of us developers have just agreed to disagree on. Mm-hmm. And so, like, sure, if we were to go start pounding this stuff out and set up a GitHub, um, you could get one guy's perspective on it, and it would make a lot of other people very unhappy. And it would be, so, it, you know, turn into another wall of text uh, and arguing. Yeah, right. And then and then so they would go off and they would fork it and so then you'd have two GitHubs, <laughs> two Git repositories on GitHub that didn't agree with each other. So it it's tough. Yeah. 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 Well, and it is. And it's it's a great question, Sterling, because when when I was trying to get started in this thing before I found Kenneth, man, I would find these websites and I'd spend hours reading them, I'd print stuff off. And, and thankfully, I don't have any hair because I wouldn't have any left from pulling it out trying to read these things. You know, <laughs> I mean, really, I was, I was on YouTube, I was everywhere, and I'm, and I, I had friends, Andy KK4UCG, and he was trying to do some APRS, and we're, we're like, why is it there just someone that can, that can help us? Because when you post in certain forums or if you're on certain mailing lists, and you ask the most simplest question. You know, you're like, oh, you must be a no-code ham, so you don't know what you're talking about. It's just an attitude. And I'm like, where is the help for this? And, Kenneth, I'm just going to say again, thank you for being here to share some help with us uh, because there are a lot of people that have the same questions, and I'm sure they have the same frustrations as I do and as uh, Sterling does, as he mentioned. Yeah, there. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, APRS is fantastic. Everyone should use it. It's great. Yes, absolutely. All right, uh, so good that somebody wrote a master's thesis on it. All right, his last, uh, his point number seven here is you should check out Faraday RF for a thingy that begins to address the issues. Yeah, so if if you haven't heard of it, the Faraday RF is kind of a neat open source uh, transceiver board that comes from the Salmi brothers. Um, I've talked to them a little bit over the years as they've been developing this thing, and I think it's a it's a nine hundred megahertz digital radio, and so it, it's a it's a single board solution. I think it's got some sort of microcontroller on it. It's got a 900 megahertz radio. I think it's about half a watt, but it can do all sorts of. It's got you know a lot more processing power than terminal node controllers and APRS. And you're talking about data rates several orders of magnitude higher than APRS. So there's a lot of really neat advantages to it. But at the same time, the Faraday RF is not a replacement for APRS, right? The Faraday RF is essentially the equivalent of one of our terminal node controllers that the firmware hasn't been developed for yet. And so if you're 
whoever is interested in going and developing the next generation of APRS, the Faraday RF would probably be a really interesting platform to start on. But I don't think it really addresses any of the issues yet so much as gives you the tools to fix them. Okay. So it goes back to that question, what is the future of? There's some potential there for that. But it's, again, you've got thousands of hams with, you know, old ICOM rigs running 144.3.0 and right they're just happy and, and with, with the wrong settings and, and they're happy doing it <laughs> yeah and and I, I don't want to call it aprs 2.0 but whatever comes after aprs mm-hmm. remember you you got to improve every metric by an order of magnitude compared to aprs right and so it's going to be a very tough problem whatever it ends up being to really make a compelling network that other people are going to be excited about getting on yeah yeah well very good question thank you sterling it's always good to hear from you man and uh, we appreciate your questions Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to count one week just how many times I see the question posted on the internet which dual band radio should I buy for my car? Because the answer for me is always the same. The Kenwood TMV71A is my personal choice for a dual band cross banding rig for my truck, my van, my home. If I could afford it, I'd have it everywhere. Matter of fact, I'm looking to get another one pretty soon. So if you are looking for a dual band cross banding mobile, to put in your car, your truck, or even your shack. Make sure you check out mtcradio.com, type in TMV71Alpha in the search bar, and you'll find exactly what I'm talking about. Remember, Kenwood at mtcradio.com. KG6 OVR73. KJ4 Fox Echo Lima 73. CQ, CQ, CQ. This is Kilo, Kilo 4, Alpha, Mike, Papa, calling CQ. KK6 RHY 73s. KM4 GIG 73. We have some uh, some more questions here from another Redditor. Uh, Adam, Kilo Bravo 3, Zulu Uniform Victor. Thanks, man, for sitting here with us and uh, going through your questions. Uh, Adam asks, is there any concept of etiquette when sending out beacons? He says he likes to set his to send out every 30 seconds because he's on a 5-watt handy and half of them don't get through anyway. Maybe because I'm being shouted over by beacons being sent at 50 watts. What kind of responsibilities do I have in this regard? Do I, in fact, have none at all? And the only reason not to send a beacon every 30 seconds is so I don't drain my battery so fast. So this is a good, this is a great question, matter of fact. Because uh, the etiquette thing is always it's, it's an opinion, and uh, yep. I'm sure that everybody has one. But uh, oh, yeah. from from your developing side, tell us a little bit about etiquette for APRS and beaconing. Yeah, so so setting what we're talking about here is we're talking about beacon rates, mm-hmm. and the the problem is that APRS is only a 1200 bit per second packet channel, and it's a shared common good. Right. And so this is the tragedy of the commons sort of economic game theory thing going on here, because the more that you beacon, the more likely your packets are going to get out at the detriment to everyone else. <laughs> right. And so it, it is very tempting. And I see this a lot where people set their beacon rate to every 30 seconds. Right. But let's go back and think about what is the objective of APRS. APRS has this def, has this defined cycle size of 10 minutes for mobile trackers and um, people, Mm -hmm. and then 30 minutes for infrastructure. 
right? And so the concept is that if you listen to the channel for 10 minutes, you'll know about all the other people around you. And if you listen to the channel for 30 minutes, you'll generally get a good idea of what else is around you. What what are the digipeters? Where are the eye gates? Where are the repeaters? Mm-hmm. Where are the supply caches and aid stations? Stuff like that. Right. And so if you're going to beacon more often every 10 minutes, you need to think about what in this second beacon is important enough to update and replace my first beacon, right? If someone's been listening to you for the last 10 minutes and they got one of your packets in the last 10 minutes, what are you sending now that is important and new, right? And mm-hmm. so when I'm, you know, if, if I'm just sitting, uh, so like if I, if I set up a, a tracker and I, I have it only on a fixed interval, um, and he's absolutely right. You will none, not all of your packets will get through. Yeah. And so, kind of my rule of thumb for a like a tracker in my tr- pickup is if I'm setting a fixed interval, I'll just set it at five minutes. Right. I figure maybe maybe they get my first packet, maybe they don't. If they don't, they get the second one, and every ten minutes they get an idea of where I am. Right. Okay. Right. For infrastructure stuff like my like a like a digipeter or an eye gate, I'll typically the well so. I will typically have those beacon every 15 minutes, right? Because then over the 30 minute span, you get, you know, maybe one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, with the one caveat that that doesn't work if you're using a tactical call sign for the digipeter, right? Because I, I kind of, um, there, there is that question of identification, right? Mm-hmm. How are you identifying your digipeter? And I have made, I, I always make the argument that when you digipeat a different packet, and you append your call sign to the end of it, you are identifying that transmission as having come from you. But if you're using a tactical call sign on your digipeter, that last call sign that you're appending isn't your FCC call sign. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? See, I, I, I'm kind of throwing some wrenches in this question here. <laughs> so, And so on those, I'll have them beacon every 10 minutes to meet the FCC requirements. Okay. And so the simple answer is on... Trackers for my uh, mobile units, I'll use every five minutes intervals. On fixed infrastructure, I'll use 10 or 15 minute intervals, um, which I, we'll talk about proportional pathing later later in the show. But um, the problem with that is a lot of people want to be updated more often than every five minutes, right? Five minutes is kind of a long and boring time. <laughs> and so this is where uh, if you're if you're really interested in learning more than you ever want to know about beacon intervals – I recommend you go back and read my master's thesis. I did a whole chapter on just this question. And there's this system, there's this algorithm called smart beaconing, which dynamically changes your beacon interval between about 30 seconds and 10 minutes based on how fast you're going and based on if you're turning a corner, right? And so, so, and, and you'll notice the low end is 30 seconds, right? But it's, it, it's this algorithm is smart enough that it only sends a beacon every 30 seconds when there's a new and important update uh, the, to send out about like your heading has significantly changed. And so if you're interested in being able to beacon that fast but not overload the network when you're sitting in a parking lot, smart beaconing is a great feature that is available in a lot of the, a lot of the track, uh, APRS tracker hardware. Yeah, I've seen it in APRS Droid. That's one of the yeah. choices. So, I mean, that's my yeah. experience with it. Uh, just kind of play off that first question. Uh, I can see maybe sending 
when you're first trying to get your unit set up maybe and you're testing here in your shack and maybe you're not wanting to wait five minutes to get another beacon sent to see if it's doing what it's supposed to doing possibly mm-hmm. but but past that i mean it's it goes back to the word etiquette and it's hey you know we're all standing on each other's shoulders trying to get in here let's uh let's be you know responsible i guess this may be a, a good word which nobody oh, likes to use. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and like, and if anyone, anyone in the South Bay who really pays attention, um, South Bay, California, pay, pays attention. They could probably tell you um, there are times when I'm working, when I'm doing development for APRX, when I I will set it up and beacon on 15 second intervals, right? <laughs> but I, I only do it for a few minutes while I'm testing something. Um, when I'm doing that, when, I, when I'm kind of doing a longer development session like that, I actually have my own private APRS network set up in my apartment on a different frequency. Um, but when I want to test stuff with other digipeters, I will set it up um, on the 144.39, beacon at 15-second intervals for two minutes, and then shut it off. I got you. Right? And so, like, yeah, none, none of these are hard, fast rules, and the, the, the beacon police won't. Yeah, well, but, but I mean, the, it, some, it makes sense. Beacon, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense right. to take care of each other. Yeah. All right. He's got another question here, and that was a great one, Adam. Thank you for that one, by the way. Uh, what's up with 200-something different symbols for stuff on the map, and why can't I figure out what any of them mean? Oh, here's a question near and dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> anyone who's been on the APRS SIG mailing list for the last year has probably seen my several long rants about APRS symbols um, because Bob Berninga and I kind of fundamentally disagree on what – the sim the scope of the symbols should be um to put a precise answer on it there is actually 3496 symbols mm. um which i know because i have argued about all of them and the issue is that bob bernanga feels that with the potential to have 3496 symbols we should use all of them but it's kind of difficult in like a 16 by 16 pixel icon to convey 3,500 different concepts. And so uh, if you want the master index for what the APRS symbols mean, there are two text files on uh, APRS.org, Bob's site, that lists all of the meanings for the symbols. Uh, The first one is uh, symbolsx.txt, which we'll link to in the show notes. And the second one is uh, symbols-new, dot txt um the symbols new is not replacing symbols x but is an addition to symbols x which replaced symbols dot text um so yeah it's a little bit confusing oh lord bless them (laughs) (laughs) right but so you know essentially it comes down to symbols come in three uh three categories you've got your primary table symbols which have a forward slash and then some symbol code and it's that's just uh, what like ninety two or ninety four different symbols that have icons. There's then your secondary symbols, which are a backslash and then some symbol code, and that's another ninety two or whatever it is. And then there's these overlays, and the overlays is what I argue about constantly, because the overlays are a letter or number on top of the secondary symbols, and so we use that a lot for digipeters, right? Because if you have a fill in digipeter, it'll be a green star with a one on it. To show that it's you know the first hop, mm-hmm. where wides or you know the high level ones are a green star with a D on it for digipeter, right? But then Bob wants to come in and define what the other thirty four characters mean for different digipeter types, mm-hmm. and I argue no one's going to remember what thirty six different letters mean for the different digipeters. 
And so this is something I debate about a lot. And the best answer here is, you know, look up, uh, pull up those two text files that Bob has, because that is still kind of the most definitive source for Mm -hmm. the meaning of this alphabet soup. But um, if you're confused, know that I am fighting the good fight to try and fix that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the chart that you shared with us the last time you were on, um, that was enough to kind of overwhelm me and still make sense at the same time. So um, that was the forward slash and the backward slash. Am I correct there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, to- I totally forgot about that symbol. Yeah, so that that, that icon set table that I made um, – yeah, so that that was that's the primary table and the secondary table, and okay. so if you if so yeah, so if you and and um, sorry, uh, so yeah, so that that kind of gives you the different icons, and the concept for the overlays what is that you, uh, it was originally that you would have different artwork for these overlays, but no one's no, no one's both artistic enough and willing to make that many different icons, right. and so yeah, like it, it typically on like if you look on APRS.FI. Um, He's actually – that's actually the icon set that I used. And so it's one of those characters with the letter on top of it. So, yeah, if, if you're just – if you just kind of if, – if you're much more of the visual type instead of the wanting to read a very dense text file, um, that table that I made was for people like you to be able to just kind of look through it and pick out the icon that you want to show up on the map. Yeah, if you want a green and yellow tractor, they got them. Schoolhouses, it's there. You know, tornadoes. Yeah. Wow, that's I need to write that down. I got to ask you a question about that later. Um, so that that all makes sense, and um, it's almost like a vanity call to an extent because it's a little. You, you don't have to go there. You can just identify mm-hmm. yourself for what you are. But you know, if a guy's got an APRS tracker and he's out, you know, cutting you know acres and acres and hundreds of acres of of wheat or grain or whatever. You know, and his tractor, why not put it on there with a tractor? You know, it'd be pretty interesting to watch. Yeah. You know, so right. I, I mean that. You know, yeah, because there's not that there's not that big of a tactical difference between a sedan or a jeep or a pickup, right? Yeah, but yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's cute. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe fire trucks. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so thank you, Adam. And uh, if we can, I'm going to go to to uh, Ian's question here. Uh, his call is Kilo Six India Bravo X-ray, and he says, "What is the APRS Local Frequency Information Initiative, and how does it work in practice when you are in front of a radio?" Yeah. So remember, so th- this is this was kind of a big initiative that Bob's uh, started pushing in the late 2000s, and it really comes down to uh, not only do we want to know where the local, you know, where the other people are on APRS, but we want to know where the uh, local frequencies are. Mm-hmm. And so there is this defined format, which is poorly documented, of course, for how do you mark up a frequency in an APRS packet. And so that modern radios from like Yezu and Kenwood, when they receive these packets, you can actually press a little QSY button and it'll f- flip you over to that frequency. Which is a great right? idea. And, right? It's super cool. Um, and I think, I think some of the newer radios, I think they will actually, in your status comment on your beacons, insert the frequency that you're listening on on the other side of the radio. And so as you're showing up on the map tooling along in your Jeep or your tractor – It'll include the frequency that you happen to be on for your voice side of the radio. And so someone else will, on their radio, receive your beacon. Their radio will parse the frequency markup and go, this guy is on this other frequency, be it a simplex or a repeater or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you can ju- they can just press the QSY button, switch over to the same frequency as you, and give you a call. 
That, that's that's tremendous. I mean, that is one of the coolest things that I, I don't have access to, but it's really an awesome idea. Is it feasible and is it happening? Uh, so yeah, that, 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 that's a mixed bag, right? Some places, some places are really good about it. Okay, Silicon Other Valley, place, California, more than likely. Uh, I, I don't know, right? Okay. It, I, I don't, I don't see that many frequency, um, frequency objects around here. Okay, but uh, and and that really kind of comes down to the priorities of the local APRS working group, right? Okay. Because um, the concept is, as a repeater trustee. Some repeater trustees will go, you know, I really want my repeater to show up as an object on APRS and be beaconed. And so they will need to find a local digipeter or iGate or something to beacon out the object, an object for their repeater every 15 minutes with their frequency spec in it. And then, yeah, at that point, locally, other uh, people driving by, that repeater will show up and they can just click QSY. If that's not a priority for the repeater trustee, it just kind of will never happen. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, before before we move on, Eddie had a, a question here as well. And his call is Kilo 8 Victor Zulu. This is from Facebook, by the way. Thanks, Eddie. He also asked about the object beacons, which are used for the frequency information system. So how, how, what beacon symbols do we use there? Yeah. So... Um, Object beacons and kind of generally because like I've only been talking about about them as repeaters, but in an abstract sense, objects are anything that isn't an APRS node that you want to show up on a map. And so, if you want to, as a digipeter, make a a repeater show up somewhere else on the map, you would beacon it as a repeater object with a repeater symbol and some name for the object. Which there's disagreement on what the name should be. I like to set up my repeater objects as like the call sign slash R. Um, people like Bob Bernanga argue that it should be the frequency of the repeater with some gibberish at the end to make it a unique object name since you can't have every repeater on the same repeater pair in the world have the same object name. Um, and which I kind of argue against the frequencies as the name because you then immediately put the frequency after the name in the in the object comment. So um, repeaters are one thing. If you uh, some, I know a lot of people will, will actually beacon objects for like a accident or a major traffic jam. Mm-hmm. They'll put objects for that. Uh, storm watchers and like the weather guys will uh, actually drop objects for tornadoes or thunderclouds, um, things like that. And that was um, that was my question. That's what spawned it a moment ago. Was uh, I saw some some screenshots of some APRS just a week or so ago when the tornadoes were happening in the Midwest. It's that time of year again, of course. And yeah. uh, they were they had the tornado, the little icon tornado there, and they even had. I guess it was like a future track of where they anticipated it going. I'd never seen APRS used like that before, and it was quite stunning, actually. Yeah, right. Because I, I believe, I believe that you can do this in objects as well. But you can give it a, but I'm not sure. But I think you can give it a heading and direction. Oh, okay. Right, and so then when when that packet's received on on the receivers, they can then do dead reckoning on it and continue to update the location of that object until until you beacon it again you know five or ten minutes later right that was really cool right. I, was, I was like whoa that's i've never seen that before but i like it 
Yeah, right. And so like and so like in an event support concept, you could drop objects. You could you know put out objects for where the rest stations are. You could put out objects for where the medical calls are coming from. And so um, when when the ro- when, when your rover is out there trying to find the downed bicyclist, if you have a good location for where the bike is down, which we we almost never do, but we can hope, mm-hmm. um, you could then beacon an object with its with the 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 bicyclist's location, and the rover would then get headings to that object on their local radio. Nice. Right. This is thirty-year-old technology that's still so very relevant and and so cool. Just you guys may not like this. I love this for some reason. This is like the little bug that bites me all the time. I like this a lot. Yeah. So I, I, had, no, I had no idea you could do that. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come right back. Uh, we've got Kenneth Finnegan with us, and he is continuing to answer our APRS questions. This is show number two, and man, we are still learning. Back in a sec. Coming up on the last segment of episode number 73, Ham Radio 360 Podcast. Thank you so much for staying with us throughout this show. Hope you're learning along with me, of course. Hey, this weekend I got a call that says, Kel, you need to check out TexasDigitalRadio.com. So I did, and what did I find? Full power basin mobile radios for DMR, UHF, and VHF. Full power, optional Bluetooth, optional GPS, and more. You can find it online, TexasDigitalRadio.com, or visit MTC Radio to get yours ordered today. KM4 SUA 73. 73 from KR7RK. This is November 3, Mike Delta Golf sending 73. N3VEM 73. N4MN November 4, Mike November 73. N4TFN 73. November 6, Mike Romeo Whiskey, 73. NN7X, 73. Back with Kenneth, and we're going to talk about the K4 CDN Digipeter. This is something that, you know, I kind of considered and was like, yeah, that'd be cool, but how? And then Kenneth said, hey, man, you put a you put a dual band antenna up at your repeater site, which is up and running now, by the way, and, and working pretty well. Um why not use the the VHF side of that antenna with a duplexer to to do a, a digipeter eye gate? And I'm like, oh yeah, that'd be cool. I didn't think about that. So uh, I, I don't think I was the only one that didn't think about it because I, I heard some chatter about it after we had had the conversation on the last show. And uh, we're we're kind of in the process. Actually, Kenneth's doing all the work, but we're <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth is in the process of helping me get an eye gate uh, digipeter, whatever. We're going to call it there for the K4 CDN repeater site. So, Kenneth, um, you know, it was a conversation that just kind of came out of the blue the last time we talked. And uh, the repeater's up and running. The coax is there. The uh, the uh, duplexer's there. All I need now mm-hmm. is just to, to put a to get a two-meter rig of some sort and uh, the Raspberry Pi thing. So so what are, what are we doing on your end, uh, the, the smart guy's end of this project? Yeah, well, so, so let's first first cor- uh, correct you a little bit for okay. the the four guys at home that are ang- angrily writing an email right now. Um, in amateur in the amateur world, we typically refer to the uh, when it's a crossband combiner, it's a diplexer. Diplexer, yes, yes, yes. right. I'm dyslexic, um, so you guys got to just cut me some slack. Diplexer, yeah, that be, diplexer. That, that being said, um, that diplexer duplexer distinction, as far as I can tell, is very much just an amateur radio thing. As I, I had a very confusing interview with Space Systems Loral once. Um, where I was interviewing for a position and they apparently like reverse it in satellite communications or something, or it's like slightly different. So, um, 
for the four of you out there, yes, it's a diplexer. Um, for the rest of you, uh, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> the the K4 CDN-5 Digipeter. And so uh, the the on the objective side here, what what we're kind of thinking about doing is we want to set up a Digipeter and an internet gateway because at the repeater site, you've got internet, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Right. And so since it's going to be kind of the, one of the first Digipeters in your county, since your county has no APRS, um, it's going to be both a Digipeter and then also an internet gateway. This is a perfect application for the software that I'm the developer for, APRX, right? Alpha, Papa, Romeo, X-Ray. And all that APRX needs is a um, radio with a terminal node controller or a modem somehow. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to run on some system running Linux. The the easiest and cheapest, well, I w- maybe not the easiest, but the, the cheapest option for getting a computer that's low power and running Linux is, of course, the Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi is not the most ideal, fantastic option for a Digipeter, but um, in this case, since it's going to be your first Digipeter and it's not on the top of the 6,000-foot mountaintop, mm-hmm. the, the Raspberry Pi is kind of an acceptable solution. Okay. Right? And I get, I get this question a lot about, well, what's my problem with the Raspberry Pi? And it mostly comes down to it's, it runs off of 5 volts, right? so you need some sort of voltage regulator hanging mm-hmm. out in there. It runs off an SD card, which tends to roll over and die more than a traditional hard drive. And it doesn't have – it's not a full computer, right? It's a single-board computer, so you, you're going to need a real-time clock on it somehow. Mm-hmm. You're going to need a, uh enclosure to make it an actual case, right? So th- those things – those are the problems that you need to grapple with. But thankfully, Kale's got me, and so I'm taking care of most of these problems for him. I'm smiling real big right now. Thank you. <laughs> right. And so – what what happened was I went I went and had Kale buy a Raspberry Pi, a the nicest SD card we could find on Amazon, a enclosure for it. My favorite Raspberry Pi enclosure is the Flerk case, um, and then a real time clock hat. And so the real time clock hat is just a little board that sits on the Raspberry Pi. It, it plugs into like pin one through nine. And it has a little battery on it and a little chip that keeps track of what the current time is. And then on at that point, it's all just software, right? Which is simple, right? Right, Cal? Sure. <laughs> when you have friends like Kenneth, everything's yeah. so. On the on the Raspberry Pi, I installed uh, Raspbian, which is a Linux. It's a derivative distribution of Debian Linux, and so we've got a Linux system running on it. I configure it to use um, the real-time clock hat instead of um, no clock at all because when a Raspberry Pi turns on, it doesn't know what time it is. It, it assumes that it's January 1970 because it, it had no way to remember what time it was when it last turned off. And so this is fine when it's in your apartment or it's only an internet, internet gateway, but if the repeater site were to lose power and lose internet and then regain power but not internet, your your Digipeter wouldn't know what time it is. And I think you'd, you'd probably would want your Digipeter to keep working mm-hmm. even though it doesn't have internet. And so that's why we need, need this real-time clock chip on it. On the APRS side, what we're looking at is I installed APRX on the Raspberry Pi. 
you can download the pre-compiled binaries from my website, thelifeofkenneth.com slash APRX, which we'll link to. Or what I typically do, since I'm real lazy at releasing new versions of it, is I'll go to, I'll go to the Git, GitHub repository, download the most recent version, and compile it myself because it's real easy and I have instructions in the distribution. So I install APRX, and what it does then is it puts this text file in the etc. folder of Linux. Anyone that's familiar with Linux, um, the etc. folder is where you have all of these settings for applications like APRX. So it's a single file where I then go th walk through it, and I, I'll, of course I'll be giving this file to Kale so that he doesn't need to, to deal with it um, to get started. It, I just set up, you know, this is my call sign, this is the GPS location, I want to be an internet gateway, I want to be a digipeter with these kind of, you know, minutia settings. Mm -hmm. And at that point we've got a digipeter. We need to hook it up to a radio. Right, and this is where there's a thousand different options for different... APRS terminal node controllers and radios, or you can do commercial radios and sound card modems. Um, and this is, this is, you know, there's a thousand different options here and it's real. It's one of those big things that it's mostly predicated by what you have laying around. Right. Okay. And so if you happen to have a two meter radio and or a terminal node controller laying around, fantastic. What I do myself for all of my own setups is I will use Motorola, Warus radios. These are the CDM 750s or the CDM 1250s, and I'll hook them up to Argent Data OT3M TNCs. Uh, a lot of people give me some flack for not using like a USB sound card modem, uh, and so like uh, if you want to go the sound card route, Direwolf is a good soft modem, which saves you the expense of the terminal node controller. I don't like it because it doesn't. Like it's not a clean hardware solution. Like you're talking about a USB sound card with some audio cables that are kind of spaghettied back there, and you have to somehow get push to talk involved. So like there's some soldering involved. The OT3M from Argent Data is this really clean deck of cards sized metal box with all rugged strain relieved connectors that I can take this whole build of Raspberry Pi, the OT3M, and a radio bolt it all to like a rack shelf, throw it off the top of the building and it'll bounce off the bottom and still be okay. Right. Cause everybody so, does that with their APRS digipeters, just in case it's a, it's, it's a good lit litmus test test to make sure your <laughs> hardware is good is go throw it off the top of the building and then install it. No, don't do Sling that. Sling it down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, not that I've ever bounced a repeater out of the back of my pickup truck. That'd Maybe, be, yeah. <laughs> that's a story for a different time. Um, but, uh, so that's what I do. Um, the problem with Motorola radios is that they are commercial radios that are only meant to be programmed at the radio shop. And so if you don't, ha again, it's one of these things like if you don't have a service monitor and you don't have the several hundred dollars worth of hardware and software required to program a Motorola radio, that probably doesn't make much sense to you. Mm -hmm. And so I have been looking for good amateur radios to recommend for this sort of packet radio build out. And kind of the one that I've been pretty happy with is the Alinko DR-135. It's under $200. It exposes all of the audio lines you want out the back as a D sub nine connector. And it's an amateur radio so that you can program in the frequency and save it through the front panel, right? So we're not talking about you need to get an old DOS computer and a Motorola rib uh, radio interface box, right? So it's, it's much more friendly for any of you that aren't used to commercial radio programming. 
the awesome thing about the DR135 is that it was designed with a terminal node controller option board that you can install inside the radio. Wow. The one that came from Alinko is about 140 bucks, and I know almost nothing about it. But Argent Data makes a copy of their OpenTracker 3 in the same profile that you can then open up the radio, drop the Argent Data OT3 135 into this radio, and you've suddenly gotten the terminal node controller inside the radio. So you've taken a piece of hardware off the shelf and put it inside the rig. Right. And if, if we were only setting up a standalone digipeter and we didn't need we didn't want the eye gate functionality, mm-hmm. that radio is literally all we would have. Right. Oh, we really? wouldn't need the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. <laughs> right. If if you were happy with it just being a digipeter and didn't need an internet gateway feature to it, it's that radio, apply power, apply antenna, and the digipeter lives inside the radio. No, but but let me just pause you there before I screw I'm gonna screw this up, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. At that point, can I come out of that pinout somehow and see what I'm hearing? Um, so when you install the OT3-135, it, uh, it kind of shims between the radio motherboard and the D-sub on the back. Mm-hmm. So the D-sub on the back is no longer your receive and transmit audio connections, okay. but is an RS-232 serial port. Ah, all right. Right. And so that's since we want iGate, that's what we're sending to our Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. If you want to still listen to what the, the, the uh, packet belches sound like, Mm-hmm. Um, you can just turn the volume up on the front. Okay. Right. And so like the, the radio is still perfectly fully functional and through the front panel, you can actually turn on and off this TNC so that it's only used on some memory channels, not others. Right. So it's a super clean setup in general for digipeters or trackers in your car. Um, and in this case, since we want an eye gate, the main thing is it just takes one extra box off of the shelf. Yeah. So, the the final install for yours, if, if we go this route, is Alinko 135 with the OT3 135 installed inside the radio. And then a USB cable or a serial cable going from this radio setup to the Raspberry Pi. The the OT3 has also you know can support built-in digipeter function, right? Which is how you could do it as just a standalone digipeter. Mm-hmm. It supports, you know, standalone tracker features where you could plug a GPS puck into the serial port on the back and be, do that. But we're just going to set it up as just a modem. And so it's, all it's going to do is handle audio uh, encoding and decoding and, and kick it out the back on the serial port as a KISS data stream, which is the standard interchange between uh, desktop and computer software and these terminal node controllers for packets. So we'll install the, the modem board. We will uh, do the deviation alignment. We'll then configure the OT3 as a KISS modem, and we will never touch it again. And all we and have then, to do on the other side is just plug a, uh, a network cable into the, the router at the fire station to the Raspberry Pi. Yep. So you'll have a you'll have a you know Ethernet cable coming down to the Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi will be running APRX, which will ha- um, in the config file for that will say, all right, this. This KISS modem is on this serial port on, you know, at this baud rate, mm-hmm. um, and that will be talking to the radio. And then the radio will have its antenna plugged into the diplexer and be uh, sending and receiving all your packet radios. And that's a digipeter. Wow. That's crazy, right? man. That is yeah. crazy. Right. So and so th- 
the Elenco rig is is the choice should be the choice for the amateur right now. Yeah, and I I I have just I finally have bought one um, recently and started playing with it. Um, it came at the recommendation of several people, uh, one of which who uh, I was talking to one of the other guys on one of the APRS chat rooms, and he said that he has bought three dozen of these and deployed them. <laughs> My God! Right, and so like you know, like I felt pr- I feel pretty good with like the you yeah. know the three or four digipeters I've built out in my life. And he's like, yeah, I've I've spun up about three dozen digipeters. Oh I'm like, gosh. holy, right. <laughs> um, Right, and so and so at this point we've got Kale a functional digipeter with internet gate, uh, gateway capabilities and RF gateway capabilities to route messages to and from. Right, and so all of a sudden now anyone within range of this fire station or within a, of a digipeter hop of this fire station now shows up all the time on APRS FI, gets digipeted through this fire station tower, and when they send a message to someone outside the local range that person on the other end can actually reply to them and it'll get gateway to back out through this station. Which goes back to almost question number one, question number two of this whole conversation. Right. We just saw it in real life right there. Yeah. So suddenly we've solved the problem. Wow. But now there's the question of, well, what about this local, local information initiative? Mm-hmm. Because this, this iGate slash Digipeter is sharing an antenna with a repeater and so it would be a, a crime and shame if we didn't also beacon the K4 CDN repeater object and advertise what frequency it's on. Very good. Right. We can, and so we can do that. Yeah. And and this is one of these things that I I haven't I before before you asked me to work on this project I haven't really played with the frequency initiative stuff much mm-hmm. because most of my uses for APRS are strictly tactical position reporting for events. Right. Right. Because at the, you know, and, and in that scenario, the beginning of the weekend, I get everyone together and give them the frequency plan and where all these rest stops were. I hand them all maps. So I've, I've traditionally not needed to tell people what frequency to be on because mm-hmm. I've already told them that. Okay. And so I, I, I had never really dug into it. And so I start digging into the frequency spec text file, which Bob Berninga wrote and put up on his website. And I'm reading through it to try and figure out, all right, so I got to describe, like, all right, here's the frequency and, like, here's the tone and the offset. And then I get two-thirds of the way down it and there's these two sentences <laughs> for radio for scheduled radio nets, you want to have a markup kind of like this. And he gives, like, one example of, like, how to indicate when the net is on this repeater. And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. What are you talking about? You know, and, and and so I started. I'm like, this is like literally. It was just those two sentences that offhandedly mention the net, the net markup. Mm. And and I'm like, well, I mean, you know, and I I post I posted your repeater object string to the the mailing list to say, all right, guys, sanity check. I want to make sure that like I've never done this before. Have I parsed this all correctly? And Bob comes back and goes, man, I wish more people used the net markup things. And I'm like. The what? <laughs> but right, and like, and several other people in the middle of this are like, we have never heard of this thing before, <laughs> and so I went and sat down and I spent about I spent it was about about an hour and I wrote up a, it was about a page and a half long spec on indicating when nets happen on a repeater, right? And so it's just it's this little short string, right? So it starts with N E T, and then you put like the day 
and the time, or you can put ranges of days. And so like if you had like a 9 a.m. talk net, you could put Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. If you had a Wednesday evening one on the first week, first week of the month, mm-hmm. um, you can mark up something like that. And it just, this had never been specified or defined anywhere. Wow. And so I sat down and wrote it and I kind of threw it up on a random GitHub repository I have for these sorts of little one-off documents. But this was all just because you asked me to put together a repeater <laughs> object and I had never dug into it before. So Sterling, that's uh, that's how APRS is developed. It's my fault. Yeah, yeah, right. It's just, you know, some developer trips over something and is efficiently annoyed by it enough that they go and they write a one page spec for it. That is awesome, man. Yeah. That is crazy. And, right. And of course, I do all this work without without first asking you if there is a planned scheduled net <laughs> on the repeater. And of course, last I heard, there isn't. No, not at this time. But we, we can make right. one if we need one just to make it work in APRS. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, all of this work and then not to have a repeater a, a net object on this. Yeah, we, yeah, we so. should, well, you know, really, um, it's kind of funny. We're, we're hoping one day to connect an IRLP note or something to this thing. Because we have a mm-hmm. lot of listeners who who are like, "Hey, Kel, we want to get on your repeater." I'm like, "Well, you know, it's good for like eight miles. Come on, kind of a thing." Uh, yeah. So yeah, that would be that. That's definitely something that we're looking towards. But yeah, I mean, if we need to put a net on there, man, we'll have a net just to have a net. Yeah, right. There's just some time that people are on and say hi. So yeah. But you know, if if anything else, I've at least defined it so that other people will know about it and can use it, and then. I, I, I deliberately kind of made it in a way that if people follow the spec, um, it would conceivably even be parsable so that you could get like automatic notifications for local nets on nearby repeaters. That's really right. Cool. So, there, so once you and, and this is kind of a, one of those things where, you know, as a developer, once you clearly define the stuff and people start following it, uh, there's all sorts of other awesome applications that start falling out of it. Right, and so I'm really excited to help get APRS up in your county because then uh, not only you but other people in your county can start playing with APRS mm-hmm. and start advancing the art. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's nothing right now, but that's changing. That's changing right. very rapidly. Yeah, so that is so cool, man, to know that dumb old Kale stumbled over, helped somebody stumble <laughs> over something to, to, to change the world. How about that? Yeah. Leave it to but, a ham radio podcast, you know? Yeah, it, I... Yeah, let, let, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let it be that dramatic. Yeah, we'll yeah. just say that, yeah, yeah. change the world. It sounded good, yeah. didn't it? It did. It, it yeah. sounded really I'm going to tell my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that they will be as excited as most people. Yeah, yeah. Well, my grandchildren. Boys, I remember back in 17. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I tell you, we, we have answered some questions and, and uh, may or may not have gone along, which doesn't matter when we're learning. But, uh, you know, why, why not use this opportunity, episode 73, to really get out there and uh, to c- continue building on something that has befuddled me for for the last two or three, four years. So, uh, Kenneth, we all owe you a great deal of thanks for all of your work that you and, and all the developers do in APRS. Appreciate everything. The local help here, the help on the show, answering these guys' questions. Man, I can almost imagine there being a whole nother question show come up after i said duplexer and diplexer so <laughs> right because remember a- aprs is not the like this, despite the impression that i give on this show it's not the only thing i do in amateur radio like i do go play with repeaters and um stuff like that so i mean and, and there's, there's, we'll, we'll link to your your video presentation on the the run that you do that's a very interesting we, we did last time i want to put it up there again because it's a very interesting yeah. presentation that's quite a 
quite a challenge, quite a big deal you pull off out there. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, the the marathon. It's actually it's uh, what sorry, what is it? It's a triathlon. triathlon. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a swim and then a bike and then a run. So it, it gets pretty pretty fast and hectic. So. You know, I do one of those like once a year. You know, I might swim once a year. I might run for fifteen <laughs> yards once a year. <laughs> so. Right. Where last year I think I supported uh, six or seven events. Mm. So yeah, yeah. He, he's not just sitting around. Looking at the uh, looking at the APRS, trying to figure out how to to make cutesy little add-ons. I mean, he's out there working it. So, oh yeah, and I'm I'm just really glad that this can through through this show I can I can reach so many more people and get them started in APRS. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. What what turned out as one man's problem, we found that there were thousands around the U.S. and the world who were suffering through the same thing. So, thank you for helping us get pointed in the right direction. Yeah, Kale, you you were just fumbling ahead of your time. Yeah, hey, if I've got to be something, let it be that, right? (laughs) Thanks again, Kenneth. Thank you. A very special thanks to Kenneth Finnegan for coming back on with us, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, the listeners, for the questions that we received. And if, if this has stirred up more in you and you need to find out more, you want to learn more about APRS, if we need to do a third show, I'm up for it because I love learning about this. For whatever reason, man, this thing has bit me, and I want to see it working here where I'm living. If you guys are having some good experiences where you are, maybe you've got something you can share with the community. Remember, we're on Facebook and Twitter. We've got a forum over on the website. Every where you look we are and we want to be involved with you whatever you're doing in the hobby hey a big shout out to all the listeners who came in with their call signs for us for episode 73 a big deal thank you everyone we really appreciate it and hope you guys have enjoyed this program can't go without saying a big special thanks to my friends down at main trading company yeah don't forget them if you need some gear check out mtcradio.com as well as our show sponsor ellacraft so excited to have them on with us here in 2017 Hamvention's on the way we're still trying to make the booth reservation but we're coming no matter what so you guys be on the lookout for details following that we'll see you on episode number 74 thank you again for listening god bless every one of you in 73 y'all thank you for listening to the ham radio 360 podcast Brought to you by Main Trading Company, Paris, Texas, and by Elacraft.com, hands-on ham radio. To learn more about the show, visit our website, hamradio360.com. 73s, y'all.